Welcome to DJ Grandpa's Crib, the podcast of Kickstarter, the crowdfunding website. Each week I interview real people with honest dreams. Today is Monday, September 16th, 2013. On this day in history, in 1620, the Mayflower set sail from Plymouth, England with 102 passengers. They were headed for Virginia, but a freakish storm blew them off course, and instead they touched ground in Massachusetts, where they founded the first permanent European settlement in New England. The water creates a thin layer of steam that protects the wood from the hot glass. After blowing and working with the glass for a long time, it's then reheated one more time to get it nice and soft before Scott drops it right into the mold. That's me holding the mold. I keep it closed and tight as I can. Scott blows into the pipe and turns the glass over and over to try to get it to fill up all of the mold. You're Luke? See the glass yes. Now, I watched your video. Mm-hmm. Hmm, I say that to everybody. But anyway, I watched your video and... The first thing that caught me, besides, you know, the beauty and the awe, and, you know, oh my gosh, you know, gotta have one of those type of thing, is it's almost like nobody has any clothes on in the video. And you guys are like blowing glass and stuff and, you know, and flamethrowers and not flamethrowers, but torches. And it's like, dude, are those people props? Are they really the employees? Did you, did everybody get burned to a cinder? I didn't see any scars, no nothing. I was like, these guys are either pros this is these guys are props brought in for the video. Scott and James, they make every bit of it, and I put every one of them together. Hello, Kickstarter. My name is Luke Anderson. I'm a sculptor and a designer, and today I want to introduce you to my latest project, Alva. 140 years ago, Thomas Alva Edison introduced the world to clean electric light. Those original light bulbs were beautiful. The filaments looked like ribbons of fire dancing in crystal cages. And with Alva, I've tried to capture that same feeling on a much larger scale. No, it is funny. We filmed it on a pretty hot day. And as you can imagine, in the shop, it gets very hot. You have a furnace. It's about the size of a Volkswagen Beetle. And uh, when you open the door, it's about 2,200 degrees inside. So everything inside is just bright orange. It's like staring into the sun, kind of. I think the day we filmed it was like 85 degrees and it gets really hot and right. Scott just wears a t-shirt and sandals and you know stuff like that. I can understand it. I once did a report on an ironworks factory in Baltimore. Oh, okay. And you know they had one of those big giant kilns like you're talking about and you right. know, it almost melted my microphones to a cinder. In the winter time it's great in that room but in the summertime it gets very very hot. I see in the video you say second time on Kickstarter, so how did it go the first time and how is it going now? The story is, and it's true, is that I made one of these for my dad for Christmas and uh, everybody that saw it really liked it and I knew about Kickstarter and thought, well, if there's any place to try it, it would be Kickstarter. So I uh, got together with a couple other people and uh, we said, you know, how would we make it? We designed it and then we made one and said, okay, we think we can make a couple of these. I figured we'd maybe sell 10, you know, not that many. Right. And I was blown away. We sold 88 of them, and I thought, well, people like these. So I had a lot of people contact me between the time the last one was up and when we put this one up, and they wanted one. And being a bit of the perfectionist that I am, I wanted to go back and really design it for more of a mass production sort of mindset. 
And so that's what this product is. So maybe we should tell people exactly what the product is because I haven't done a good job of describing it. The easiest way to think of it is it is a... It's called the Alva. What it is is an 18-inch tall light bulb that is somewhat reminiscent of some of the early lamps that Thomas Edison made back in the uh, 1890s. So it very much is trying to capture the beauty of those original bulbs that were not terribly powerful, but they were amazing because for the first time in human history, we had fire that wasn't going to necessarily burn a house down. You could read by it all night long. It wasn't a candle, it was electric. What he gave the world really allowed the Industrial Revolution to happen. I say in the first video for the first project that the bright lights of today, we've lost the beauty that the bulb itself can be. There's been a real resurgence in the last 10 years of people looking for old Edison bulbs and looking for those classic bulb shapes and the look. And I just wanted to take that to a whole nother level and basically build what I call functional art. And what that means is these are really sculptures, is really what they are, but there's enough function given to them that people can relate to them not just like a picture on a wall, right. but actually does something for you. But really at the heart of this, these are, these are pieces of art that are made by artists. What do you guys do like regularly? Scott actually runs a hot shop and he doesn't get to do as much glasswork as he'd like for himself. He manages uh, renting out the space he helps other people come in. He runs classes, that sort of thing. Right. And then James does a very similar thing for an art studio that is based on uh, doing ceramics. And you think a lot. What do you do? I'm a product designer. So I've uh, been working in the juvenile industry for the last six years. I design strollers. Uh, I work with some guys who do some car seat work. Uh, we make high chairs, play yards. Dude. You know, all those car seats and stuff, they're always getting recalled all the time. Yeah, that is true. Do you ever get in trouble for that? Do the people get in trouble for it? Do you ever get in trouble for it? All the car seats keep getting recalled all the time. Uh, no, not nothing I do. Okay, all right. Maybe, or maybe that's how you guys stay employed. You know, they always get recalled and you got to design a new one or something like that. It does help if your stuff does not get recalled. That is true. Um... <laughs> uh... Sorry about that. Oh. That's okay. Do these lamps, do they last long? One of the things that you do as an artist is uh, something called, uh, like for instance, if you're a printmaker and you print things, you try to use archival paper. So that's paper that will last for a very, very long time without yellowing. You try to use materials that don't require a lot of maintenance. You try to use materials that are uh, close to nature so that they'll last for a long time. Mm -hmm. And that's something we've really endeavored to do. So the lamp itself is made of wood, ceramics, and glass. And those are three of the things that they always find when they dig up old cultures. So we think the lamp will last for a long time. In addition to that, we've also used LED lighting. So we use uh, LED bulbs in the lamp, just like you can buy at Home Depot or Lowe's. They're a little more expensive, but they have a couple benefits for this lamp. One is they last for a very, very long time. Uh, one of the fellows who bought a lamp last year, one of the original Alva Project lamps, uh, he has had it on in his house in New Jersey 24-7 since last October. And uh, part of the reason you can do that is because LED bulbs last for a very long time. The other benefit we get from LED bulbs is that the light can be very focused in the physical structure of this lamp to make it as bright as possible and to really light up the entire filament. 
And then the last thing is, is that LED bulbs put off very little heat compared to a traditional incandescent light bulb, which ironically is what our, our lamp looks like. Go to kickstarter.com and type in Alva, that's A-L-V-A. It's a very beautiful art project that lights. Thank you very much for coming on the show, Lily. Oh, thanks very much for having me. How's it going, Yendrid? You still living on Twitter and Facebook and all of that? Yeah, but it's hard to keep up with since I'm doing finishing touches for my book. Hey, don't you have like a whole bunch of girls, like a whole crew of girls on um, Twitter and stuff for you? Yeah, I do. Yeah, I've seen them. And now, and now since you have the projects alone, you have like a, a whole group of liberal guys too that are backing you. Yeah, there's a lot of guys backing me up. <laughs> I mean, I talked to a couple of them, you know, like interviewed them for different stuff that they had on the show. And they were like, she has to make it. Jenny has to make it. I'm oh, backing. <laughs> I know. They were like, talk, they were like, man, they were real protective of you, dude. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I'm surprised. I didn't know that. <laughs> no, they, they are. It was like three people who have been on the show. I'm so flattered. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, man, so you have a growing fan base out there, so keep that remote angel up, keep those dreams coming, and keep writing all those ideas down. Of course. <laughs> yeah, I like your artwork. I'm going to have to, um, not sequester, what's the word? Um, <laughs> I can't remember. I can't remember. Whatever the word is, hire you one day. Commission. Oh, yeah, that's it. I got to commission you one day. Okay. <laughs> okay, you relaunched on Kickstarter. How's that been going? It's been like slow some days and fast some days. It's been going on so long, up and down. You've had stamina, man. You've kept going. And man, 90 days on Kickstarter cannot be easy, man. It's 60 days. I know, but didn't you have 30 before that? Yeah. Yeah, it's 90 days, man. That's a lot of determination, man. You're working hard for the money, man. Yeah. Okay, well, what are they saying about you? You know, I mean... You got to hear people talking about you behind your back now. What are they what are they saying? You know, are they cheering you on? Are they dragging you down? Are they are they saying go Yenny go? Everyone has been like cheering me on and stuff. I only had two people cancel their pledges on me, but it was only a $1 pledge, thankfully. Okay, now have you changed anything from the last program? I'm I'm trying to get a story out of you somehow. What's been the story the second time around? Well, for this one, I touched up the video and I announced a stretch goal that was for everyone to get the character sheets. So mm -hmm. people are interested in that. And I added a lot better rewards. Before, there weren't any rewards for people who don't have to deal with shipping and stuff. So I put digital rewards and a lot of people like that this time. Now, you started off with kind of a bang. Because you, you know, sometimes, let's put it this way, sometimes people believe that when you fail, quote unquote, on Kickstarter, you don't reach your minimum funding, that it's almost like the kiss of death if you want to release anything else. But you didn't look at it that way. You, you said that it wasn't going to stop you. You stepped back for a little while, regrouped, you know, you just said about your digital rewards and stuff, and you relaunched. And now 
you've made more money than you did the first time. You're almost at the amount that you asked for because you you also lowered your minimum funding goal. Yeah. I've gotten a lot of tips from different people saying lower the funding amount to 1000 and go for less amount of books and run for 60 days to see if it's more successful this time. The first time was more like a learning experience. I see it that way. Mm-hmm. So I learned what my mistakes were to do better for this time. Why don't you just tell us for those people who missed you the first time. So what is Remote Angel? Remote Angel is a manga and its genre is drama, romance, and supernatural. It's about a girl named Alice Asangi and she finds herself becoming an earth angel. And so there's some mysteries behind it against the beings of hell, such as a demon named Rose, and she has to ward off all this evil since she's one of the children of light. Hmm. The first time you told me all of this has come to you by the way of a dream or your dreams. Yes. Have they changed any? Sometimes I have more different weird dreams for future story ideas. So I have like one other story in the making. <laughs> it was a, such a surreal dream and, <laughs> and it made me so inspired and it was kind of like darkish. So I'm like, oh, I need to draw this one day. You know, a lot of people, they take their dreams and they shake them off and they, you know, get a glass of water, a glass of milk and they keep going. But you, you turn over and somehow there's a pad and a paper and Sometimes my dreams have like a story and it feels like a movie. <laughs> Has anyone ever told you that's strange? No, sometimes people are envious. <laughs> are you a pretty positive person? I never used to be, but ever since I grew up a little bit more, I see things on the brighter side. Yeah, and how old are you now again? 24 years old. You know, I call you Yendrid, and I know that's not your real name, but I call you Yendrid because that's like, to me, you have a good side and a bad side, like all people do, a yin and a yang. Yeah. And your good side is Yenny, and your slightly twisted side I'll call Yendrid. Okay. <laughs> so that's where I get that from, your whole remote angel and seeing the dark and the light side. So I try and play with that. She's like DJ Grandpa's little sister there, so I asked her back, and I just had to know what was going on with Yenny. And if you're looking for her project, go to kickstarter.com and check out Remote Angel. It's a manga comic, right? Yeah. It's not over yet. It's the relaunch. If you can't find it there, go to djgrandpa.com, and we'll have links for Yenny and her um, twisted side, Yendra. <laughs> Thanks for coming on the show, Yenny, again. <laughs> Thank you for having me again. <laughs> Congratulations on buying Septicon, the perfect industrial space station for mining and processing uranium. The Klondike Industries company has equipped it with cutting-edge offensive and defensive systems, which makes it a powerful space fortress. How are you? Doing pretty well. How are you doing? I am fine too. Thank you very much. Uh, Let's see. Oh, yes. I need a pronouncer on your name, just in case. My name is uh, Tim Bokarev. The full name is Timothy, but uh, shorter name appropriate team now where are you at i can never is it florida is it russia is it germany i'm living in two countries germany and russia so now i'm in germany but half of my time i'm in russia and the name of your game septicon it's our second game uh before we launched berserk uh rather successfully on kickstarter and now we are launching septicon it's different story completely different 
uh, game. But uh, in reality, we have a lot, a lot different games, uh, very good quality. Kickstarter, it's, uh, for us, it's a very important step to understand if this game will be liked by brighter audience, because uh, most of our games already launched in Russia, right? And they already proved in time, etc. But of course, if we're talking regarding Russia, it's a little bit separate market with separate tastes. Right. But in Russia, uh, we only start to understand that besides chess and domino and some other traditional games exist something more. Of course, everybody knows Monopoly. And when I was young, uh, it's what not possible to buy in Russia Monopoly game because probably it will be like capitalist inventions. But uh, we, <laughs> capitalist. Yes, I love that. Yes, I love that. Yes, like uh, you know, like propaganda. Well, it is propaganda in Russia. It was. Yes, but we just take the big sheet of paper and make our own right. uh, Monopoly. I remember it. When did you move past, you know, chess and dominoes and stuff like that into other board games in Russia? And, uh, the development started probably 10, 12 years ago. Okay. But now it rapidly grows and it grows 50% per year. Wow. And uh, when we are talking regarding the hobby games, which I represent, it's a big company even if we are talking regarding international standards for board games, of course. Right. But still in hobby games works more than 50 people and the company grows dynamically. And uh, one year ago we decided that we need to go internationally. Before we just licensed games, but we understood that we have uh, some interesting products with good implementation level which we could present internationally. So we made some kind of Dota company, Hobby World International, and we are now launching different games internationally. You and I need to get down to business. Now, we're talking about everything. We're beating around the bush, but we have not talked about the game, Septicon. What is it about? How do you play it? Why would anybody want to play it in the first place, besides it being from Russia? Okay, I will I will tell you It's uh, the story of Septicon is remarkable. Why? Because in Russia, we have one event where the people, uh, could you imagine the gross, uh, oh, gross, it's the Deutsch, uh, big, big uh, land uh, like Russia. Right. And uh, the authors, uh, board game authors, come from each uh, part of it. And there was one game which looked very unusual. I never see something like this, but it was so complicated in the first glance. Right. And uh, Septicon, it's two space stations which try to protect uranium, which try to send waves of rockets, uh, biodrones, and other offensive things to opponent's direction, but at the same time trying to develop and to build defense. So it's very interesting turn-based tower defense game, right. in my opinion. Yeah, so it's somewhere in the future, but where the technology is rather uh, low level. All models on the station should be uh, switched on, switched off manually. You need to send your clones to do it. There is no automatization of the station, and it's much fun to do it. I played it many times, and it's rather depth game because the guy, the author, Konstantin Seriznyov, who made it, he made it. 12 years ago, and during all this time, he played it with his friends. So there was a lot of version before, and this is already, how to say, very, very fine-tuned version. Now, what's the author's name? Uh, Konstantin Selizhnev. Konstantin, uh, 
That's a cool name too, actually. That's a cool name too. It sounds like a someone who got in a lot of trouble in their formative years. That's what I'm talking <laughs> <laughs> Your video's really cool, man. I mean, it was like almost like a full-blown movie with the drones and the... I'm also very grateful to our video production guys. I like what they've done. Yeah. Oh, man, they did a great job. Uranium signs everywhere, you know. <laughs> I, think... I like it myself. <laughs> but again, for us, it's now learning curve because it's only our second campaign, but there will be many more, and each time we try to do a little bit better. But uh, for us, now it's very important to build fans and build uh, our supporters for our products internationally. Well, for anyone out there, I like this game. I like the video. Well, I like the video. And I look forward to testing the game. I think it's incredibly cool that it's out of Russia. And I know Russia and the U.S., China, we all get into tiffs at times. But maybe board games can draw us together somehow. And maybe that sounds Pollyanna-ish or something like that. But it still sounds kind of cool and I do like it. So go to kickstarter.com and check out Septicon Uranium Wars. And I think that's totally cool in itself. Uranium Wars, asteroids, <laughs> asteroid belts, meteors, you know, clones, drones, all of that. I'm going to say his name in my best, the best yeah. Russian I can muster, Timbo Karif. Very good. And they say they are Russia's largest game publisher. Tim, thank you very much for coming on the show and sharing your story. Thank you for the interview. It's going okay. How are you? I'm doing well, thanks. This is Aaron Dunn speaking, founder of MuseOpen. And the goal of the organization is ideally to encourage interest in, in music specifically, but in the arts, to increase access, to give free sheet music, music recordings, and textbooks. And the way that we do that is by removing copyrights from other content and providing it for free on our site. I was trying to figure out what is your... Kickstarter about actually? Could you explain it to me in a nutshell? The idea of this is to try and do something ambitious to highlight the work that we're doing and also just to make it interesting and innovative. So in this case, we're trying to free the entire life's work of someone, uh, in this case, Frederick Chopin, who's been deceased for almost 200 years. We think it's sort of a nice way of thanking him and also just presenting his works to allow anyone to access what he created for free indefinitely and without any restrictions. Now, how would you do that, actually? It doesn't just go into public domain on its own anymore? I mean, has Walt Disney changed that? Disney, they've made it harder, and they've made, I think they've scared people. So the safest thing you can do is to go record it yourself and say, I dedicate this to the public domain, which is what we're doing. And per your earlier question, the sheet music that he wrote is in the public domain, but you don't actually have any MP3s or CD recordings of it unless you specifically donate it. So the earliest we would get any actual music is old recordings, and even then there's some risk if copyright extensions keep being extended. Oh, I understand now, because I didn't understand before, but I understand now. So you never know exactly when the recorded works of Chopin go into public domain because of right. the endless extensions, yes, which I said were triggered by Walt Disney. 
because they wanted to protect Mickey Mouse because it was about to go into public domain and of course there would have been people bootlegging it everywhere. So, If you actually look, there was a recent court case. Someone took an old record. This is Noxos, a classical music label, and they were sued by Capitol Records who magically was able to extend the copyrights even though it was in the public domain. There's also all kinds of complications, international law, things might become in the public domain in England sooner than they do here. So if you don't do it yourself, you always run the risk of getting in trouble. So the money that you're raising on Kickstarter, it's not to necessarily buy whatever, whatever, but it is for to re-record all of his music and then be able to release the digital versions of it because if you were to play someone else's or take someone else's and reissue it like sometimes record labels do, you could get sued by the original copyright holder. It's kind of a funny concept because the music is already free. Everything he wrote, everything he created that he spent years of his life is already out there. It's free. Anyone can do whatever they want. But music, you know, in its sort of truest form is something that you sit and listen to and that isn't free. Someone would have to record it and say I'm going to give this away even though I could copyright it and I could charge you for it. So we're hiring money to really just to get professional recording studios and great piano players to sit down and record it and then give us the rights and then we release it. Wow, that is a nice thing you're doing. (laughs) We think so. It's fun. He just had his 200th birthday. We think it's a nice belated birthday gift. And it's also just great music, and we think more people will probably try classical music if they could try it for free. You're like a nice guy or something. It's almost (laughs) like a Robin Hood-ish type story. Yeah, except there's no stealing here, hopefully. Oh yeah, that's right. Hope so. But it still feels like Robin Hood, and it's good to characterize you like Robin Hood. Yes, I like the comparison. I think that's cool. Have you had any success at doing this previously? We've had success and failure, to be totally transparent. So in our first Kickstarter, uh, this was actually when Kickstarter was just taken off. This was before we really knew what things would cost and how difficult it would be. So basically what I did is I had a quote from an orchestra. I said, okay, I need maybe $11,000 to record anything. And we smashed it. We got something like $65,000 to $70,000 to hire an orchestra. We recorded tons of music, whole symphonies. We got the complete Goldberg Variations an immense solo piano work. People spend their lifetimes learning this music. Right. It's all free. It's on our site. At the same time, we, we would have loved to have gotten more, including something like the complete life's work of someone, which is what this project is attempting. Kind of like if we had a free James Brown shirt or something like that, a free Wheezy. Who have <laughs> you freed? Actually, all the top, Mozart, Beethoven. But this is selections from what they've done. I mean, to, to do all everything they've done would probably take several million dollars. Gotcha. So we took some of the most popular things they each wrote, and that's all free. It's online. All right. Is there anything I should know before I go, man? Because you, you've explained it to me. I, I understand it now, and I'm really glad that you let me talk to you and stuff. Because I, I know you don't have to talk to me for any reason or <laughs> anything like that. You know, you can be selective and all of that because you, you are pretty hot on Kickstarter. So The main takeaway here is it's not so much uh, this particular project. For us, it is a sort of validation of the idea that that ideas are meant to be shared and that we all take from each other. There's got to be limits, and that's what copyrights do. But once they expire, the world, I think, should invest in new artists, in in new ideas, and we should all be able to enjoy what's already been created for free. So if nothing else, go to MuseOpen, go to YouTube, check out the music. I think everyone will enjoy it. So that's pretty cool. So you're not like a rogue or anything. You're not like, I'm against all copyrights and everything should be free. And No. It has its place. I think the whole reason it was invented really was 
I think there's some story of, I think it was booksellers when Project Gutenberg came out and people were printing books. It was very easy to copy someone else's book, so they started saying, well, I'm going to protect this. And so you want to create an incentive for people to create great stuff. But after a certain point, there's no more incentive and they're just reaping profits, right? Also, everything ultimately is somewhat a modification or a copy of an older idea. So if you prevent all ideas from being copied, you prevent all new ideas. All right, one twisty question. How long do you think a copyright should <laughs> last for? Uh, you know, it's complicated. When you look at like medical devices, right? Uh, right. Or, or pharmaceuticals, if you come up with a medicine, they're dealing with this right now. I mean, there are countries that can't afford. Oh, yeah. I guess true. this would be more of a trademark or something or mm. patent. Some of those are like four years or eight years because otherwise all these people are dying that can't afford the medicine. When it's music, I've seen economists say anywhere between 40, 50, or 60 years max. But in the United States, some things are 70 or 90 years and they may increase. You know, I think all dot orgs are like kind of like think tanks, foundations and stuff. So I figured like you guys had like kicked this can around like the last 10 years. So you got to have like a good answer or something. I think a person's life, I would say maybe 60 years would be pretty healthy. Past his life or? Yeah, past the end of the life. That's what it is right now. Now, if you got a beef with copyright or you're for copyright or trademark, you, or you're just one of those anarchist 99 people and you're against it all, go to kickstarter.com and check out free Chopin. Is that it, right? Free Chopin? Yeah. Yeah, and yeah. check out free Chopin and decide for yourself. And if you like the project and what Aaron's talking about, back it. And if you don't, send me an angry email. Oh, yeah. Always send him an angry email if you dislike whatever. Aaron, thank you very much. You've explained it to me. I understand now, and I really appreciate you coming on the show. Thanks for having me. A gyroscope is essentially just a spinning disc and uh, by spinning that disc it can balance on almost any surface, on a string, on a fingertip and I really love the way that it can kind of defy our perception of gravity. How are you doing? You Very good, thank you. Okay, call you Adam, okay, and you have the precision gyroscope. I watched the trailer, it's awfully cool, the people seem to be very excited and I guess you have the end results in four days. You've you have four times your funding on Kickstarter. Yeah, it's kind of unbelievable, really. I know. How long have you been waiting to put this project up? About six months, I guess. Before we launched it, you know, I was looking on Kickstarter and thinking, God, it's really competitive, and there's loads of great projects out there. And I kind of right. I suspected that it would maybe do maybe twenty five thousand dollars. I was hoping, you know, right. I had just no idea that it would do something like this. So. It's been astonishing, the response, but we're a really small group and really passionate about what we do. And it's just nice to see that so many other people are as well. Are you going to know what to do with the extra money? We're just going to make more. I mean, it's, uh, <laughs> it's not an enormously profitable thing because it's, uh, it's very precision made. And basically, we wanted to get it out there. We wanted people to own these things and they're beautiful objects in themselves. We weren't really in it to make loads of margin and to make loads of money. So we priced it accordingly. And more orders means that we're going to get it, be able to get it to more people, but it doesn't mean that we're going to make loads and loads of money. So <laughs> it's just so nice to see that other people are passionate about these things as well. So, But it's not a saddening thing. It's just you have to make more. <laughs> <laughs> Successful no. problems, I guess. 
I mean, don't get me wrong, it's going to pay the salaries of the guys in our workshop, you know, because they'll be making these things for three, four months, probably, you know, it will, it will pay for their salary and stuff. So, so that's great news. You know, I mean, I, I'm not complaining about it in any way. It's fantastic. Now, I love gyroscopes. I love science and they're totally cool. You know, you got the wow factor and they're pretty also. They're very pretty. Thank you. But what made you do a gyroscope? You know, when I was five, six years old, I think my dad gave me one. Mm -hmm. And I remember playing with it and kind of being fascinated by it. I didn't really sort of understand what was happening. and I didn't really think to question it either. You know, as a kid, you get given loads of things that amaze you. Right. And then as you get older, those things amaze you less and less because you understand how they work. And I guess that's the beauty of giving toys to kids. They are amazed by them. But a lot of adults aren't amazed by the same toys. But right. the gyroscope was something that kind of endured, and I kept on being amazed by it all the way through my teenage years and adulthood. And then when I got to university, I studied engineering at Cambridge University, and we had lectures on the gyroscope. And, you know, we were, we were learning about all of the quite complex maths behind it. Even when you understand all of that, it's still kind of perplexing. I mean, I put it in the same category as, as magnetism and gravity. Right. It's a sort of thing that you know is there, but... It's difficult to explain, um, to grasp intuitively. I hate when you say that a little bit, magnetism and gravity, because yeah. I just have a sweet spot in my heart for magnetism and gravity and science, man. I'm sorry. Yeah. Okay. The wow factor, the, the shock and awe. In like layman's terms, how does a gyroscope work? How does it amaze people like that? What is it physically doing in that video? It's really just a spinning disc. As you can see, it's like a, a frame with a brass disc mounted in it and the brass disc spins really fast and when you spin the disc you increase what's called the inertia of the device so it, it like it wants to resist motion mass versus inertia if you were to push a car without with the handbrake off is that what you call it in the states the handbrake yeah, handbrake if you were to push it along a, a really flat road as a single person you know you could probably push it and once you've been going for two three hundred meters you get it up to quite a decent speed you know you might be running behind it but it takes you a really long time to get up to speed because it's so heavy, right? Right. With a gyroscope, it's almost like you're taking that car, but you're making it more difficult to push. I mean, in layman's terms, you're almost making it kind of heavier, more inertial. And that means that it's difficult to push, and it means that it doesn't like changing its orientation. So if you stick it on a finger, on the tip of your finger, and you stand it upright, it doesn't really want to move from that upright position. And that's how it balances it's quite a complex thing to explain in very simple terms. So that's our Bill Nye for the day, science guy. Well, yeah, at the bottom of our Kickstarter page, we've got a little explanation on, on how the gyroscope works. You made it from specific metals, I believe. Yeah. Why? We made the frame out of aluminium, and aluminium's light. It's a light material, light but strong. It also looks really beautiful, especially when you do something called anodizing. So that's the application of, a, of an oxide coating mm -hmm. that changes its color. So it looks really cool. It's light. It has all the right properties to be great for a frame for a gyroscope. Uh, we use a brass disc, and brass is really good because it's very heavy. Uh, it's dense. So that's what you want for the spinning disc in a gyroscope. You want it to be really dense because the denser the material, the more inertial energy you can put into it. So in other words, the more it will resist being tilted. I appreciate the science moment. I know you're busy. You're, you're out there shaking hands, kissing babies, raising money on Kickstarter, no matter what, and, and your day job, whatever that is. <laughs> 
for anyone out there, if you like science, remember DJ Grandpa always supports science. Science is totally cool. And so go to kickstarter.com and check out Precision Gyroscope. And if you can't find it there, if you can't read the small print, you get lost on Kickstarter for any reason, go to djgrandpa.com and we'll provide links. Adam, I want to thank you for, for coming on the show and for providing such a cool toy, even though it's not a toy, but such a cool toy for the Kickstarter community to just wow over, man. And, and I'm, t- I'm totally excited by your project, man. So I just want to say thanks. Cheers, DJ Grandpa. I don't know about you, but I don't have any trouble getting my kids to stare at a screen. When we open the Robot Turtles box, their faces light up. We sit down, and the next hour is full of aha, and wow, and zzzz. We play together, and I get to share my love of programming with my kids. Dan, it's not easy welcome to, to the show, time. man. I'm very excited about Robot Turtles. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. It is great to be here. I created Robot Turtles because I wanted to make it easy to spend quality time with my twins. It's really simple. Each kid picks their favorite turtle. You make a maze on the board. They play the instruction cards. When they get the robot jewel, they oh, win. Man, how are you doing? I'm doing great. What a day it's turned out to be. I know. DJ Grandpa here. Your initiation into the Kickstarter community, I've heard you've been causing a lot of problems on your first day in the community. and I'll say it's not my first time in the community. It's just my first time on this side of the table. I'm wearing my pebble right now, and I was wearing my Dustin jeans and my Pistol Lake shirt yesterday. So I've been a long-time Kickstarter fan, but it's my first time in the hot seat. I see you have back 24 projects. I like you even better now. I love it when people back projects and then they... You know, then they have their own, so that's pretty cool, man. Congratulations. Well, thank you so much. It is really exciting to uh, to see how the sausage is made and, and to really connect with the folks in the Kickstarter community. It's such an amazing group of people. My inbox is just full of ideas and stories and inspiration. Are you a computer programmer by trade? Well, here's the thing. I don't write code for a living. I always say I can write code, but if I'm writing code, something's gone terribly wrong. Oh. I learned to do it when I was a kid. And, you know, for me, it's like, I don't teach my kids to read so that they can be literature professors, and I don't teach them arithmetic so they can be mathematicians. I teach them this stuff because it's just amazing life skills, and being good at this sort of stuff just gives you a leg up in life, and and that's what I want for my kids, whatever they do. Right, and and your game really teaches this now, because I... I mean, I don't know programming, so, you know, I'm just looking at children jumping around and, you know, reading <laughs> flashcards and stuff. But, I mean, does your game really do, as the video says, teaches them, like, some sort of rudimentary of programming? It teaches fundamental programming concepts. They're learning what might be one of the simplest programming languages ever invented. It's got six instructions, and they're printed on cards without any words. They're just pictures. But... They are learning how to program in that really simple language. Does that mean they're going to be able to go and build a video game on a computer? No. But does it mean when they sit down at a computer for the first time and start taking a programming class or learning about it, that they're going to say, oh, this is easy. I know how to do this. Yeah, that's exactly what it means. It's like, you know, learning the letters with your kids before they're ready to read and learning the sounds they make. Right. It's getting all those fundamentals in place so that the next stage when they get older is all beat up. I liked what you said about you had no problems getting your children to watch another computer screen because 
I look at all of them as glorified televisions. You know, they'll they'll watch those no problem. So I wanted it to be a game about interacting with the parent or the aunt or uncle or the grown up. I didn't want it to be a shove the kids in the corner and go have them play by themselves. I didn't want it to be parked in front of a screen. I wanted quality time to be built into that. I wanted it to be the box you open when you're thinking about what can I do to spend some great time with my kids, not the box you open when you say, how do I keep my kids busy while I make dinner? How long have you been thinking about putting this game together? While I was taking a shower one morning. My wife's in school, and I was going to watch the kids that afternoon. She was watching them in the morning while she finished up some homework. And I was thinking, like, how can I do something fun with my kids? So I printed off some clip art and put something together, and we just started inventing it together. And I, I started making up rules. Did you do the video yourself? Was it a homebrew? I shot the parts that were my kids, and I shot the parts that were other kids. And I had a great firm called Bootstrapper Studios come in and shoot me playing with the kids and then edit it together. Now, did the children, were they on cue? You know, did they have cue cards? Or, or did you just let them jump around and freestyle and you just recorded it all? Here's what I did. I said, could you tell me what this card does? And I said, could you tell me about the game board? The only line I fed them was, we love robot turtles, which you can see in the outtakes. They started playing this game where they'd shout it and then run screaming from the camera as fast as they could. That was the only line I gave them. Everything else was just them speaking from the heart. Go to kickstarter.com and type in Robot Turtles. It's the board game for little programmers. I mean, everything about this is totally cool. And DJ Grandpa always supports education because it's the right thing to do. And if you can't find what you're looking for at kickstarter.com, you know, maybe a little fuzzy, the small print or something like that, go to djgrandpa.com and we'll provide links to Dan and his robot turtles. Dan, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks so much for having me. At the turn of the century, this century, flash fiction was an underrepresented genre in literature. Hardly anyone wrote it, Hardly anyone published it, and the public virtually had no idea what it Hello? was, except no, this is Mark. Ways. When did you guys start out? How old is your magazine? Uh, it's uh, 13 years old, uh, so that uh, started in March of 2000. I see in your information, in your literature, it says that your magazine, Vestal, started the Flash Revolution. Yes, uh, it's an old concept, but I mean Hemingway, of course, wrote that, and uh, that was way before us. And uh, you could argue that it was um, the concept of uh, flash fiction existed uh, for a long time, but there was no outlet specific for this type of fiction. Some magazine published occasionally flash fiction, but uh, nobody uh, published it exclusively. And there was no uh, specific outlet for this type of uh, genre. And that's why we started that magazine, my friend Sue O'Neill and I, to specifically publish flash fiction and only flash fiction, nothing but. Now, a lot of people still don't know what flash fiction is. So do you have a layman's definition or some just a short Wikipedia type of definition? It's a very short fiction. Of course, it's a number of words. Some people say it's 1,000 words or fewer, but by our definition, it's a 500 words or fewer short story. Even though it has a limitation in terms of a word limit, it still has to have a plot and has a beginning and a middle and the end, and it has to have some character development. But since it's so short, it has to be energetic, it has to be powerful, 
and uh, it has to deliver a punch. What brought you to flash fiction? I thought this genre is very exciting because it's on the surface it looks like it's it's very easy to do because it's so short. But if you are a writer, you probably will understand that writing very short fiction takes more time than writing something long because it's easy to be lazy and continue going on and on and on. Right. But actually, if you want to something which delivers a punch. So you have to com- really compress it. And that's what flash fiction is compressed. It's compressed and energetic, so I love the genre. On the other hand, it gives a, the, today's reader is, is a very busy reader because a lot of um, competition uh, to the reading. It used to be that the reading was one of a few entertainments available to, to the person, but now there's so many different types of media available. And uh, for people who don't have time, so this is the genre. Why do you have a campaign on Kickstarter? Actually, I started this campaign uh, for a couple of reasons. Um, the first reason is uh, I just wanted to, even though this magazine is the, is the oldest dedicated to the this genre and it started the whole revolution, but still, um, for some reason, we might be not as well known in the field. I mean, the people who are experts, of course, they know who, what the best review is. But to delay people, sometimes they don't know. So that's one of the uh, ways of bringing attention. Second is uh, that we wanted to give awards for flash fiction. Uh, so next year we have anniversary for our 14th anniversary, and we'll issue uh, that uh, will be our 44th issue. I thought it would be a good idea to give awards for flash fiction to bring attention to the genre and to reward good stories. And I'm talking about awards not uh, for um, something which we have printed uh, or we have published, but uh, to awards in uh, genre flash fiction in general. And I uh, just wanted to get some funding. And uh, again, this is not what Kickstarter is, so I didn't uh, emphasize this idea of awards much. Is there anything you'd like to add that maybe I didn't give you a chance to say? If uh, people would read flash fiction and, and there are magazines available for free and best review, I mean, the, the web edition is uh, is free. So I think that if they would read it, they would really to like this genre because uh, it's, it's probably the best way to get themselves introduced to fine literature. And so I welcome everyone to come to read Vestal Review or any other flash fiction magazine. And I think that will be time well spent. Well, speaking with Mark Budman, his magazine, Vestal Review, it's on kickstarter.com. Go check it out. They're currently funding. And if you can't find it there, we'll always provide links for Vestal Magazine on Kickstarter at djgrandpa.com. Mark, thank you very much for coming on the show and educating me on flash fiction. Thank you, DJ Grandpa. I'd like to thank all our guests. I'd also like to thank our listeners. Each week, we couldn't do it without you guys. A special thanks goes out to Trevor Williams and to my mentor, The Mumbler, for providing music to DJ Grandpa's crib. Thanks to Jeffrey Banks, Bertram Zeke, and Aaron Levine, our assistant editors. Until next week, so say we all. The homepage for DJ Grandpa's crib is djgrandpa.com. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter, DJ Grandpa's Crib, all one word. 
please subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, which helps other people discover the show. And don't forget to leave a comment while you're there. Our producer is Von Rupert. The executive producer of this and all Bedrock Communications podcasts is A.F. Rufus. Thank you.